Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are people beginning the book of Bamidbar. We are beginning the book of Numbers. Um, and, you know, Aviva Zornberg has this uh, amazing saying about this book in her book called Bewilderments. Um, cause it's in the wilderness, get it? Like, so, um, this is the book Bamidbar in the wilderness and her book is called Bewilderments. Um, and she says that this really, this book is the book of epic failure, right? This is, this is the story of a trip that was supposed to take, you know, a week <laughs> to go from, uh, Egypt to, um, the promised land to Canaan to Canaan, uh, that, that's not, it's not easy, but it's not a hugely long trip. Uh, and so that was supposed to take not a lot of time. And how long did it wind up taking? <laughs> 40 years, <laughs> right? Um, it took 40 years uh, because everybody failed at doing their job. Everybody failed on some level until we reach the point where God has had it. And God says, this generation is too impacted by slavery to be able to build what, what I, I'm freed them to build. And so this generation has to die in the desert. Um, it is their children who will inherit the promised land and will build a society, supposedly, based on the values that they receive at Sinai. So, so this is the book of epic failure. And it, it, it's interesting that one out of five books of the Torah is, is completely devoted to how we messed it up, right? And um, it's like, it's so Jewish to me. It's right, you know, it's not like, yay, we're the best. And here are all the stories about why we're so amazing and why we're so clever and how we're so strong and how we're so faithful. <laughs> not like this. Our, one out of five of the books is about how we messed it all up. And then we canonize our critics, who we call prophets, right? So it's so Jewish, this way of looking at the world. Um, but I think, and that's because a lot of what Torah is coming to teach is what we've talked about is that, you know, Torah, Torah meets the world as it is and is all about trying to move it to what it should be. Um, so yeah, Barry says, so you don't get to have a country till you're ready. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of the message. Y'all need to be readier uh, than the generation that we meet in this, in this book. Yeah. Like Mel Brooks. Yeah. We have a sense of humor, you know, that's Jewish humor um, of course. And so, um, and so this, I think Torah, Torah is addressing us, right? We are not the apostles of Jesus who are living into the example of perfection, giving up everything to follow out of faith. That is not our story, right? Our story is this one because this is who we are. When the Israelites complain, right? Torah's not talking to a group of people who never complain, right? right? Torah is talking to Jews, right? Who are some of the best complainers there are in the universe. So, um, Anyway, so so I I rather I mean I do get her point that it is a book of epic failure like in a way, um, but I also think Torah is very clear about who we are, 
and, and where we fail and how we fail. And our job is, is to not be this generation. Our job is to figure out how not to be um, failures the way this generation was. So we're in the triennial, of course, we're in the second year of the triennial reading. And, um, and so this particular Parsha is not terribly exciting you'd think the opening of the book would be hugely exciting so that they could get our attention, but not so. Um, it is, you know, pretty dry. Uh, and so I've taught the, I taught this three years ago and I taught it three years before that. And so those of you who learned it with me, then you kind of know my, my shtick um, on this Parsha. So um, I can't get lazy and just teach the same thing all the time. So I went digging for you um, and found some fun, some fun treats around around this part of the Parsha. So hopefully you'll find them fun too. All right, so let's take a look at the text. Here we go, something new and different by Deborah Adonai Moshe El Aharon Lemor. God speaks to Moshe and Aharon saying, the Israelites shall camp each with his standard, meaning his flag, under the banners of their ancestral house. They shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. All right. So we are getting the description of how the Israelites are going to uh, array themselves, to organize themselves whenever they camp. Camped on the front or east side, the standard of the division of Judah, troop by troop. Chieftain of the Judites, Nachshon, son of Aminadav. Remember Nachshon? His troop has enrolled 74,600. Now remember, we always have to deal with this word LF, which in Modern Hebrew means thousand. We're not sure what it means biblically. We think it might be a word from military uh, and meaning uh, a division. So it gets translated as 74,600, uh, but it might be um, 74, you know, division um and 600. So anyway, I'm just saying we're not sure that LF means a thousand here, but it doesn't matter. Um, Torah, Torah is going to exaggerate and make it a very big group of people um, because that that's it's it's more awesome. Right. If you want if we want to use that word to have have this be a lot, a lot, a lot of people. Um, so even if you want to translate it thousand, fine. Camping next to it, the tribe of Yisachar, chieftain of the um, Yisachar people, uh, Natanel, son of Zuar. His troop is enrolled, 54-4. The tribe of Zebulun, his troop, 57-4. The total enrolled in the division of Judah, 186-4. These shall march first. So so these are the folks camped to, to one side of the Mishkan, to the front of the Mishkan, if you will, camped on the front, which is the east side, is... It are these folks, and these are the people who, when the camp breaks, they will march first. On the south, Ruvain, and here's Ruvain's numbers, then Simeon, right, God, Ruvain. Then midway between the divisions, the tent of meeting, the division of the Levites shall move. As they camp, so shall they march, each in position by their standards. So the in, in between who we just talked about and who's coming next are the Levites, right? So the, the Levites are in the middle and you want to do that because the Levites are not military. The Levites are not fighting. 
The Levites have a different job. And so they're in the middle with your fighters in the front and behind them. On the west, Ephraim, 40,500. Then Manasseh, 32,2. Benjamin, 35,4. Ephraim, 108,1. Dan, 62,7. Asher, 41,5. Naphtali, 53.4, Dan, 157.6. If you want to go back and study these numbers later, please, by all means, open your Bible and study and have a good time. Um, so here, all the troops, so everybody, um, all, all the divisions for the troops is 603.550. The rabbis have a lot that they like to do with that number, um, but it's just over 600,000. Um, the Levites, however, were not recorded among the, the Israelites. Okay, let's look at the word. This is where you've heard me teach before. Halavi'im lo hat pakdu. So this is this is the the verb used um, hefked to count. So, but the root of this word pe kuf dalid pakad, right, is is also about having an assigned role. Tafkid, having a job, having a role. So hefked, to count. Tafkid, role. They are related. You're counting people by their role, meaning by their job. So the, the Levi'im have a different tafkid. They have a different job than the Israelites who are going to fight. And so they are counted separately. So the word for counting and, and, and why you're counting them that way are absolutely related by the tradition. So again, what, whether, whether it's as deep a relationship in the actual language doesn't matter. The rabbis run with it um, and talk about that. This is the point. This is the purpose of counting. So we'll, and we'll talk a little bit about that. The Israelites did accordingly, just as God commanded Moses. So they camped by their standards. So by their flags. And so they marched each with his clan to his ancestral house. This is a line of Aaron and Moses at the time that God spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. And here we get the name of Aharon's sons, Nadav uh, and Avihu, Eleazar and Itamar, right? Who were ordained for priesthood. But remember what happened to Nadav and Avihu, right? Remember? Strange fire, not good. Nadav and Avihu died by the will of Yudhe right? A fire went out from God and consumed them. When they offered alien fire before Yudhe in the wilderness of Sinai, and they left no sons. So it was Eleazar and Itamar who served as priests in the lifetime of their father Aaron. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Hakrev et Mate Levi. So advance the tribe of Levi and place them in attendance upon Aaron the priest to serve him. Right? So this is this is the Levite's role, this is the Levite's job. They shall perform duties for him and for the whole community before the tent of meeting, doing the work of the Mishkan. They shall take charge of all the furnishings of the Mishkan, of the or of the Ohel Moed, a duty on behalf of the Israelites, doing the service. I would not use work here. I would use the word avodah here being sacred service. That's why we call them services. We go to services. Why? Are we servicing something? <laughs> right? Like, so it's this, it's the word service. And I'm not saying it's, it doesn't mean work. It does mean work. But in this sense, it's about sacred service. Um, so doing the service of the Mishkan, you shall assign the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are formally assigned to him from among the Israelites. 
You shall make Aaron and his sons responsible for observing their priestly duties and any outsider who encroaches shall be put to death, right? So this is, this is absolutely setting boundaries and limits around the Mishkan um, and that uh, you, you don't get to move freely in the space of the Mishkan. Rabbi Meir Schweiger from Pardes says, this is the way one builds um, awe and mystique around a place And so that the holy place, the Mishkan, needs to have a sense of awe and mystique around it. And because it's like why here where it says, right? So here's that word, tafkid, tifkod. You will give them an assignment. You will give them a role. What is that, right? They They will guard their priesthood. And anyone who's not a part of that that comes close, right, gets schmeist. So, so the question that some of the rabbis raise is how come God couldn't guard the Mishkan? Why do the Levites have to guard the Mishkan? Can't God do that? God is all powerful. And, you know, so the rabbis answer, well, of course God could do that. God is all powerful. Uh, But God doesn't because God gives that role to human beings, to the Levites, to create this sense of it is our job to protect the boundaries of um, that which is off limits. It's our job. It's our role. We have to participate in keeping that um, sacred space separate. All right. So then God speaks to Moshe. I take the Levites from among the Israelites in place of all the firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the Israelites, the Levites shall be mine. So this is where the Levites ransom the firstborn. Because the firstborn of everything belongs to God. Peter Rechem, everything that opens, you see here, Peter Rechem, that which opens the womb, meaning the firstborn belongs to God. But here, God swaps out the firstborn for the Leviim. The Leviim, the Levites, will now be gods instead of the Israelite firstborn. So the Israelite firstborn, because all firstborn belong to God, but you'll remember God killed the firstborn in Egypt of the Egyptians. And in that sense, also the firstborn of Israel owe their lives because they were spared. They owe their lives to God. Um, But it turns out God doesn't want them. God wants the Leviim. And so Barry, it always makes me think about how the Israeli army doesn't want a bunch of the people that it gets, right? It's like, go, go do public service because I don't need these yeshiva bookers in my unit because they're dragging us down, right? So, um, so that, you know, God says, you know, not every firstborn is necessarily going to be, you know, groovy for service and therefore, um, I'm taking the Leviim instead because this is going to be their entire life. This is going to be their, the whole tribe is going to be involved in service for every firstborn is mine. At the time that I smote every firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated every firstborn in Israel, man and beast to myself to be mine. Ani Adonai. I am Yudhei Now, Pekod et B'nai Levi, Levet Abotam. So now we're being told to count Levi, we, we, Moshe was told not to count them before. He was to count kol tzava, all that were going out to defend the people, the military. Um, everyone who would, would take up arms to defend the people. You were not to count the Levites in that sentence, in a sentence, sentence, in that census. 
Um, but now Pekot at B'nai Levi. Count B'nai Levi, count the Levites. And again, using this word that is about giving someone a role. Kol zacharmi ben chodesh v'mala, every male from 30 and up. Tif kadem. Again, this, so this, this language is all over this counting. This sense that those come together. Counting and a role. Vayivkodotam Moshe al piadonai, and Moshe counted them by the command of God as he was uh, commanded. And so then we get a, a rundown of the people, uh, of Levi and, and their names recorded. So let me see what's happening with y'all. Where does the notion that it's bad luck to count Jews come from? That's a great question. So we call it bad luck to count Jews, but actually it comes from Torah, which is unusual, um, in that when the when the people get counted without God commanding a census, terrible things happen and people die. So the, the question the rabbis ask is, why is that? Why is it that God can command a census, the people are counted and everything's fine, but if God doesn't command the census, I think it's David who counts them and like they're schmeist. So what's that about? And, and the rabbis suggest, like the most common interpretation that I've read is that the rabbis suggest only God has the right to count God's people. We are God's people and only God has the right uh, to count us. That when human beings do that, you are reducing other human beings to numbers. That when God commands it, it's out of love. When God commands it, it's, um, it's an act of, uh, treasuring the people and wanting to number them. Or in this case, it's about, okay, you need to know Moshe as he's going now into, um, into the wilderness with this massive group of people, including lots of women and children. You need to know how many people you have in your fighting force, right? You can't do a really good job of preparing for an attack if you don't know how many fighters you have and where to position them. So that makes sense that you, you want to count by role, by job. And you need to know how many Levites you have because you need to divide the labor of the Mishkan, taking down the Mishkan and putting it back up and porterage, the carrying of all those pieces. Um, you have to, you have to know how many people you got. You know, you have to know what your team, right? How many people you got on that team um, of construction and deconstruction every time. So, so it makes sense that roll and counting come together. But if you're just counting to number, um, then it's understood to be uh, not the right thing to do. Barry's remembering in kindergarten, um, his teacher gave out tokens, and then you count the tokens, right? In my growing up, um, our teacher would say not one, not two, not three, not four, not five to count us and or using certain verses of Torah or certain verses of prayer that they knew exactly how many words were in that line. So they'd say, because they knew how many like, you know, words were in that verse. And then, they, and that's how they counted. Right. So, um, so it's very, very, very ingrained in our culture, not to count and and while it seems on the one hand silly, like we're not worried that God is going to schmice us, I think the deeper meaning 
remains for me anyway, pretty powerful. And that is we don't reduce people to numbers. And even though you do need to count, because when we're on a trip to Israel and we have lunch and we need to make sure there are 50 chairs because there are 50 people who are eating lunch. Yes, you have to count. But the fact that you have to go not one, not two, not three is a constant reminder. You're counting to give them a seat at the table. You are not reducing them to a number. Right. And that and that for me remains a really important reminder. It's it's a quirk on the one hand and a superstition on the one hand. But I like the fact that we've retained it because it says don't ever, ever reduce someone to, to being just a number. And that's why, say some of the rabbis, we get the names listed here. Right. And, and they get written down. Why? Because these people were slaves. They were just counted as numbers. We need X amount of people to move that rock, you know, or we need X amount of people to build, you know, this storehouse for grain. We need, and so count, count them off and send them over to do the job. That's how slaves are, um, are dealt with and they don't have names, right? They, you know, we need 50 of y'all, 50 Hebrews go, right? And so count them off, go, um, and that's very different from Hefkeid and Tafkid in this sense. And the rabbis want to line those up and put those next to each other to say, God is Dafka ordering accounting with names and with roles and jobs so that each person, and it says, Se'u et Rosh Kol B'nai Yisrael. That's the way it's talked about at the beginning of the Parsha. Se'u et Rosh Kol B'nai Yisrael. Lift up the head of every member of the people Israel. That's the euphemism, the idiomatic expression used for counting. And so the rabbis say that is the exact opposite of what happened in Egypt. How you were counted as slaves, you didn't have names, your you know, you know, your assignment was given by Pharaoh. So 50 of y'all Hebrews go. One, two, three, four, five, six, go. That's what counting was about. That's what your life was about. That's what your identity was about. And now it's the opposite. Now you are in service of yud vav and therefore you matter. Therefore, your head is lifted. You have dignity. You have, you have a special job in this world, and each of you is critical to it. yod Tzavah, the ones who are going to face outwards, the ones who are going to, who are going to be facing, you know, everybody else in the world, and the Levites are called Balitzava, those who come in to do tzava. And those are the ones who are going to turn inward and tend the inner work, the inner service. Their service is the inner work of inside the camp, which means in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle. Their role is to be inside the people and keeping that orderly and keeping that strong and keeping that functioning. Balitzava, those are the Levites. Yotzeilatzava, those who are going to face outward. Um, the rabbis say in this beautiful interpretation that they give of that, they say it's their job to take what's going on in the Mishkan out into the world. That's why it's Yotzeilatzava, the ones who are going to go out to do tzava. It doesn't mean just go out to war and out to defend the people. It means to take what was in the center, the Mishkan, sacred service, to take that and have it face outward to take it out into the world, both to be or lagoyim, to, to be a, a light unto the nations, 
um, to be an example, to, to set an example, because there is a part of our tradition that believes there on that day there'll be one God and God's name will be one. Everyone will be calling God Yudhevafe. There is that in our tradition, even though it makes people really uncomfortable. Um, and so Orla Goyim meant you're gonna be the example that other people are gonna want to follow. They're gonna want to live this way too. They're gonna want to live by these values too. And so you know, to, to inspire people, you have to face outward. You have to take you have to take this way of living out. Um, past the inner, uh, the, I- inside your own camp. You, you have to face outward. Okay. Um, right. So, Bert, your point about aversion from the numbers on the tattoo, that's that's the point. That's the point the rabbis are making, right? Um, is that that's what the Nazis did on purpose is reduced everybody, you know, who was a prisoner, reduced them to a number tattooed it on their arm and never used their name again. That's exactly what the rabbis are, are reacting to in saying, don't reduce people to a number. The Nazis knew the power of that and used it right on purpose. And, you know, to the question is the death of one less than the death of 6 million. You tell me, you tell me to the people who knows that one person. No, of course not. That's why the the rabbis say, if you kill one person, you've killed the whole world. That that's why Adam was created alone. That's why the earthling was created singular alone to make it very clear that every human being is a universe unto themselves. And if you murder one human being, you have killed an entire universe. You've killed the whole world. But let's be realistic. You know, one person is shot. That's terrible, of course, especially for their families. We see it all the time in the inner city, right, where those lives seem to be cheaper. Um, but a plane goes down. We can't help but react differently. We just we just can't. I mean, there, there's scale of loss and there, it's a different scale. When you're talking genocide and six million, it is a different scale of loss. So, um I mean, I'm not valuing one more than the other. I'm saying it's a different scale of loss. Um, But part of the message of this Parsha, say the rabbis, is you're taking slaves who were unnamed, who were just numbers, and now you're naming them, you're recording their names, which we see somewhere else in in this Parsha. And, And in that sense, you're saying every one of them matters. You're counting all of them because every one of them matters. To, to exactly to that point, that it's not just the collective that matters, each individual matters. And remember, I showed you that number 600,000, the Sfaremet, Rabbi Yehuda Leib Ger uh, of Ger, the Gera Rebbe, the Sfaremet says that Legugulotam, you're going to count them Legugulotam um, by their circle, by their head. Gilgul is a circle. So you're going to count them by their circle. What's their circle? Their head. And there were 600 heads at Sinai. And that's because, and that's why the Torah was revealed to the entire 600,000 is because each person understood the divine their own way and understood Torah their own way. And that without one of those 600,000 interpretations of the Torah, the Torah is incomplete. Revelation is incomplete without every one of those 600,000 ways of understanding Torah. 
So it's radical pluralism, right? Radical pluralism. Um, I found it interesting that um, a lot, and I'm not, I'm not going to get into it a lot, uh, A, because I don't know enough, but B, because I don't want to start anything. But, um, but w- one of the things that kind of broke loose recently in Israel was, you know, happened on um, you, the, the day that Israel celebrates you, the unification of Jerusalem in, in 67. So it's Yom Yerushalayim. Uh, and so I read a lot of commentary, interestingly enough, not from this year from years ago when I was doing this search about this verse, because in Safaria, I can go to any verse of Torah to move y'all out of the way. I can go to any verse. So watch this, see this, see what comes up. Once I highlight this verse, you see what comes up over here on the right commentary. So there's 23 commentaries on that verse. There's two references in the Talmud to this verse. There are 12 Midrashim about this verse. Isn't this fun? Okay, I know, I'm completely square and a total nerd. Okay, but look at this, web pages. There are 552 web pages that reference this verse. So all I have to do is click on that and I can go, oh, really? I didn't know that. Trua, that's about social justice. Let me click on that. Every person counts. See this? Then you pull it up and voila, Here's this fun piece on every person counts based on our verse. Isn't that nifty? Okay. And Safaria is free, people. You can make a free account on Safaria and you too can spend your day doing this. Um, Okay. It's really cool though. Okay. So why did I show you that? Because when I did this and looked at our verse that we opened with about the flags, I found this thing on the flags uh, that, fly uh, that are carried on Yom Yerushalayim. And this per- several people over different years wrote different articles about when is a flag a symbol of pride and, the, and, the, and unity and everyone gets behind it. And it's whether it's national unity, whether it's, um, you know, the city carrying the, the Jerusalem flag with the lion on it. And this person was saying, or carrying racist, hateful flags. So you're you're not just celebrating Yom Yerushalayim, the day that, that, that Jerusalem was unified, but what they want the implications of that to be. And, and that that is the exact opposite of what Torah wants, right? That Torah wants the Israelites to be camped each under their flag so that they can feel attachment to their ancestral house. That flag has the name of the tribe. Again, they didn't have names in Egypt, that you're connected to your ancestry, that you're connected to your tribe, you're connected to your group. You're not just one unit. You are different units within that unit. And that's a good thing. Pluralism is a good thing. Diversity is a good thing that we need to figure out how to both lean into our individuality, our own unique ways of experiencing. Every family, every tribe has its culture. And it's colors and it's, you know, specialties. And that's a good thing. And we have to learn, you know, to respect both that and the collective. So each banner was there to identify that, yes, there are 12 different histories here. There are 12 different experiences of the world here from, and we know that, you know, from the north of Israel to the south of Israel, right now they're not in Israel, but we know that they originated, right? All these stories originated by the people who had different experiences in the land of Israel, and then they wrote these stories. It was very hard 
It was very hard to bring together the North and the South in biblical Israel. They had very different experiences. They had very different agendas, and it didn't last very long. If you'll recall, how long did the unified monarchy of Israel last? Anyone remember? About 100 years. That's it. That's it. They couldn't, put, they couldn't keep it together longer than that and became, you know, they fell, the North fell to Assyria. So because of internal, a lot of internal stuff. And if you've been to Israel and you've been to the North and you've been to the very South, you know how different those experiences are and you know how different reality would have been for them. To pull that into one federation, you have to make up a story like this, don't you? When you have 12 loosely confederated groups trying to pull their act together and become one nation state, you have to make up this story that God commands them to, to camp underneath their individual unique family banners, tribal banners, all around, all facing the central sacred space. You have to make that up. That has to be your foundational mythology, because it's a mess. And if you, if you want to try to get really in touch with what a mess that would have been, look at America today. <laughs> look at Israel today, right? The polarization for us is ideological. In some ways, it would have been in the biblical world too, but a lot of it was geographical, right? And so some, in some ways, you could look at the United States as the coastal cities and then the stuff in the middle, and, and people do, right? You know, coastal cities and stuff in the middle have very different experiences and very different, you know, ways of seeing things often just based on geography, just based on where you live, what the topography of the land is, how you make your living. Is it on the land? Is it not from the land? And the tensions there and the culture there that, that's so different. That's how ancient Israel was. And so, and, and so they, they, they create this myth of this desert experience where people were different, but people understood that it was a joint project that they were involved in. And, that, and they had to figure out how, how to make that work. And what made that work was facing the Mishkan. What made it work was, yes, you're different, but you're all camped around and facing the sanctuary. You're facing the meaning of what you are as a people. You are servants of yud vav you are to face in and get clear about that and figure out exactly what that means for each of you. And then you need to face outward and take that out into the world. Lovely, Bert, and facing each other, right? And so those, you know, all four sides are facing each other. So what started as a ragtag group of slaves is now an organized, differentiated, but unified group um, who... Uh, who have a common purpose. And that common purpose is to live Torah, to live the values of creating a just and equitable society devoted to divine, bringing the divine more into the world and, and, and actually being about that and trying to figure out how, how to do that, how to be about that. Um, Right. The global North and South, absolutely. North and South in this country, for sure, because where I come from, that war was called the War of Northern Aggression or the Great Unpleasantness Between the States, <laughs> right? So, all right, facing each other at the Shabbat table. Exactly, right? That, that's how we come. Look at this. Look at, look at what I've got as my background. 
That's what we do. We come together as individuals. We come together seated in our own seats, all coming from a different week, all coming from a different family, all coming from a different experience. And we come to the sanctuary and we face each other at KI. It was designed that way, right, Judith? Um, We face each other. And where's the Bima? Oh, the Bima's down. How can you call it a Bima? It's lower than everything else. Well, if you look where Daniel Leance is standing in my screensaver, or not my, my, back, my background with the guitar, that's the entrance right into the sanctuary. It's sloped gently up. So in Reconstructionism, the entire kahal is on the bima. So it is sloping up gently to come into the sanctuary because it is the bima. And all of the congregation is on the bima. We just call you to the aron, to the ark, to do something. All right. So I thought I would show you a, a few of these fun things um, that I found. So, so one thing I want to say is that I found a lot of stuff on Yom Yerushalayim um, and fla- how flags can be used either as a sense, a sense of unification and pride um, or as a, a way of saying this, you know, this is ours and we're behind this. And this has that, these implications for you just by the way it's stated, just by what's written on those banners, what's written on those flags. I, I just loved, I don't know if y'all saw um, somebody on, on was being interviewed or they, some legislatures were saying the Capitol people, nobody took a survey of them. Did someone survey them to see if they were Trump supporters? You keep calling them Trump supporters, but did somebody do a survey? I don't recall a survey. And it's like, dude, they had Trump flags. <laughs> like when you carry a flag, you're making a statement, right? They, they had no problem identifying themselves as that. Did you see the tape? Did you see the video? It's like, they have flags right? that say stuff on them. Oh my God. It's just, it's just, it's just unbelievable. Okay. So um, share screen. Let's go to, which one did I want to show you? Oh, so Parsha Newt. This is a fun one. Um, so Parsha Newt is the work of doing this unpacking of Torah the way we do. Um, that's called Parsha Newt. So somebody had the brilliant idea to have a, a website called Parsha Nut. Get it? So it's if you just look at it, it's Parsha Newt. But if you're pronouncing it in an English way, it's Parsha Nut. <laughs> We're nuts for Torah. That's great. You got to love you got to love that. You got to love Jews. All right. So, so, so uh, the, the writer is bringing forward uh, some stuff from Bamid Baraba, which is the, the Midrash on this book and on this Parsha, Bamidbar. So from Bamid Baraba, the flags from all these different uh, tribes with their colors and their, uh, what do you call it? What, when it's a picture that represents your group, what is that called? Uh, okay. What, you know what I'm saying? A symbol. Mascot. A symbol. A symbol, right. The symbol of each tribe. Thank you. Um, but there's, it's like your totem, right? The wolf is Benjamin's. It's multicolored. Oh, a picture of a wolf. Okay. So from Bamid Baraba, these flags were regal, artfully crafted, and each one displayed an image drawn from the particular story of the son of Jacob who founded that tribe. This is our mythology. They were clearly symbols of great pride. But even as these flags were being so exuberantly waved about, the same Midrash imagines Moses beginning to worry about all the pomp and ceremony surrounding tribal identification. 
So here's from Bamid Barabbah. When the Holy Blessed One told Moses to make these flags as they desired, meaning the people desired these flags, Moses began to feel distressed. He said, now there will be future conflicts between the tribes. If I say to the tribe of Judah to camp on the east side, he will say he can only camp in the north. And the same with Reuben and Ephraim and with every single tribe. What will I do? Right? Because this is this is Jews. We see in Moshe's anxiety a keen intuition about the perils of nationalistic fervor. It is true. The more a group becomes attached to their tribal ethnic identity, the more they tend to be insistent in their claim to a particular plot of land and willing to fight for it. Moses is worried for a good reason. Flag waving has often enough been a prelude to violence. And this is what I was referring to a little bit earlier, uh, that people were saying that. Um, think about in our own in our own demonstrations we've had here right? What, what's written on those flags. But when the Midrash continues with God answering Moshe back, God argues the other side. The Holy Blessed One says, what does it matter to you? They won't need you. They know their own dwelling places. They have a diagram passed down from their father, Yaakov, telling them exactly how to dwell under their flags. And I'm not changing that, God says. I'm just institutionalizing it. They already have a traditional ordering from their father, Yaakov, just as they arranged themselves as they surrounded him on his deathbed, so will they surround the tabernacle. The flags, God assures, will not only help the tribes locate themselves in an orderly fashion on the desert plain, but will also provide them with a deep and meaningful sense of belonging in the world. As they raise their banners, they remind themselves of where they come from and connect themselves to their ancestors. Remember that the Torah called the flags a sign of their father's house. As the Midrash imagines it, that is literally the house of their father, Yaakov, who first mapped out his son's positioning by summoning them to his bed in a certain arrangement to receive the final blessings, many of which contain the symbols that will one day appear on their flags. Of course, it happened the other way, right? These tribes each had their symbols. That gets written into the deathbed blessings of Yaakov. And there are other little clues in our Parsha's layout of the tribal encampment that link us back to the story of Yaakov, the northeast, southwest placements. Um, then he goes into um, tracking that down into, um, into Genesis um, and then talks about flags. So a flag can be a marker of love or the banner of war. Which is it then? In our part, they might go when the people way. of Israel first set up in camp fact, under their flags. The rest of the book of Numbers will continue this one nation made up of tension. many tribes. They Are they bonding together as a family, civil war, defensively an assassination in the chapters ahead? But the people will also gather together for national ceremonies, communal blessings, and collective mourning. Through their long desert journey, they will be learning what it means to be a nation the good, the bad, and the sometimes very ugly. And when the book of Numbers draws to a close, they will find themselves standing at the Jordan, ready to cross over into the promised land where all of these lessons of nationhood will be put to the test. It is a test which continues even today for every nation standing under a flag. I think that is just a, a, brilliant, uh, a brilliant analysis like of, of what we're saying, that, it, that it's a both and, that that tension continues, that when we ally you know, with our flag, our own special whatever, that's both a positive and a potential to bring all of the gifts and all of the insights and all of the uniqueness of that group to the collective. But it can also be a way of separating ourselves out from the collective and, and competing with other 
parts of the collective, right, for ideology, for ideological territory, for philosophical territory, for political territory, for material resources. I think very, I think about the, the uh, Women's March, uh, and at the Women's March, someone had a flag um, with, it was a gay flag with a Jewish star on it, the rainbow flag with a Jewish star on it, and they were, they were kicked out of the Women's March and told, you can't have that symbol here. You can't have a Star of David here because of Israel and oppressing the Palestinians and, and, and Arabs and other brown people and, and absolutely it won't be tolerated here. So, right, that's an example. Like, and for, and for, for the Jewish, you know, lesbians marching in this march, it was devastating, right, that, that certain flags were allowed, certain symbols were allowed, other symbols were not. Um, other things were not tolerated um, in terms of what they represented and the population they represented or the ideology or whatever it was that, that you know, folks perceived of as being something they couldn't have uh, at their march. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that part of the problem that even the people who are marching for supposedly the same cause uh, they don't have all their ducks in a row as far as what they even see as, you know, acceptable or not. Well, I don't think the problem is that they don't have their ducks in a row. I think the problem is what was what this this commentary was lifting up. There's a tension between we're all in this march together for one cause, but within the collective, there are competing ideologies. There are competing, there are competing and unique and separate groups who have different perspectives and different ideas about what the, you know, what the way forward is. So that is a natural tension. That's always going to be. So do you and, think it was that? Do you do you believe that it was? It should have been allowed for them to carry the flag. Of course I do, but I'm a Jew. Of course. Yeah, I, I, I know that. <laughs> there are other people who would say, no, of course they can't do that. Of course but not. You also studied so much and been around so much with Palestinians, things like that. Knowing their perspective on it, um, does it change anything? For, for me, no. It, that <laughs> To march as, as proud gay Jews should absolutely be allowed. Do, I mean, I'm not sure what the question is. So I, I think no, it should have been allowed, but there are people who feel just as strongly on the other side that it should not be allowed. In other words, what should have been made that, you know, if Palestinians wanted to uh, have the same kind of flag with their symbol also on it. I would or, love to have a gay Palestinian flag. I would love that. Uh-huh. I would love to see that. I'm not even kidding. I would I would love it. I would welcome a gay Palestinian flag at the Women's March. Gesundheit, right? It's halavai. It should only be. You know, bim hirabi amenu, right? So what happened to the people with that, with the Jewish flag? Did they have to leave? Yeah, they left. I mean, you know, what, what, do you want to stay somewhere where it's made very clear to you you're not wanted, right? They were like, we're out. It was horrible. It was really traumatizing for them. Um, Barry? Uh, yes, I think there's a, there's a slight difference between people telling you you're not 
supposed to be part of our group because you're less than. And the reasoning, on the other hand, being that you do not repudiate the oppression of others. And that is why you cannot march where people are protesting the oppression of certain uh, sexual tendencies. So I think on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, no. So on the one hand, I I agree with you. But but I think, but in some ways, it's the same thing. They're saying you are less than because you won't fill in the blank, repudiate, you know, the oppression of others. But they could also say you are less than because and then fill in another blank. I hear what you're saying, that it was a very, it's a very specific, you're not inherently less than, you're less than because you're choosing to support the Zionist oppressors and colonizers, right? So I understand the distinction you're making, but that's just another label. That's just another criterion. That's just another ideology that people call you less than because you support it. Being a Jew, I would say, on the other hand... (laughs) (laughs) Right. On the other hand, on the other hand, uh, the Star of David has been the symbol of Jews before Israel, and uh-huh. progressive people should not allow that uh, the fact that Israel is taking uh, uh, ownership and agency for every Jew all around the world, although it's not. Uh, there's this uh, kind of comedian Friedlander who says that Hitler was more inclusive uh, than some Jews. Uh, um, we shouldn't let that fact uh, it's really collaborating with this notion that Israel represents every uh, Jew uh, around the world so it it really under uh, it really digs a hole under the hole right right and who and who has the power right who has the power to decide that that what that symbol means right so this is a lot about self-identification too, ironically, because that's what they say, we, that Israel denies the Palestinians. All right, uh, Bob? Now, for anyone who is interested, there is a good book by Ezra Klein, uh, came out about a year, year and a half ago, uh, called Why We Are Polarized, um, and really discusses the development of polarization and uses um, the American population as an object lesson to what causes us to be polarized. Interesting. Well, I know why, because they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, uh, and that's so one of simple. the reasons he says we're polarized. Right. right. It's so simple. So this is um, Hasidic commentary on our verse, on our on our Parsha, or this, this part of our Parsha. Several Hasidic commentators see in our verse, the, the, the first verse that we read um, about camping under their flags, a hint of how Jews must seek to understand their own unique purpose in life. For example, each person under his standard with the banners of his family, every Jew must know and think that he or she is unique in the world. And there was never anyone exactly like her or him. If there were someone like them before, there would have been no need for you to come into the world. Every single person is someone new in the world, and it is her or his duty to improve all their ways until all of Israel has attained perfection. This commentator seems to be exploring the tension between each person finding his or her own personal standard or flag and also being grouped into a larger social unit under, quote, the banner of the family. This is a fundamental tension in contemporary Judaism. 
Each of us must develop our own personal journey of Jewish spirituality, and yet we are not alone in doing so. We are inheritors of a larger Jewish tradition with all of its teachings and customs and different interpretations. There's no such thing as a Jew who just makes up a brand new Judaism for themselves, but rather we always exist as individuals in a creative covenantal relationship with the larger Jewish community. This creative dialectic between individual and community works in both ways. Not only does the individual have to find their own, quote, flag within the larger Jewish tradition, but we must also recognize that the Jewish community is not complete, as it were, unless people are finding their own comfortable place within it. Judaism is not one size fits all. One person may become zealously observant of ritual practices. Another person may devote all their energy to Judaism's vision of social justice. A third may find that studying sacred texts is the proper flag for that person living Judaism. As our commentary points out, it is only when each person finds their own flag or personal mission within the broader Jewish framework that the Jewish people as a whole can find its perfection or its ultimate potential. And then that person goes on to describe what it must have looked like in you know, all of those banners, all, all, all of those colors, all of those symbols, and all facing, facing the Mishkan. So that's, that's our work, right? That's what we do here. We're each finding right our flag uh, to camp under. Helene, did you want to say something? No, I was just going to say that's beautiful. It was said uh, so perfectly. It was written so perfectly. I agree 100% with that. Beautiful. Beautiful. That was beautiful. Right? Judith Ubik is saying that sounds like Reconstructionism, right, Helene? That, that, that's what, right? For some of us, that's the beauty of Reconstructionism is that we are not only invited, but we are commanded to, uh, to find our own flag. And that means you have to learn. That means you have to study. You can't find your place within the tradition if you don't know anything about the tradition. So, so that's what we're doing together, right? We are, we're learning. We continue to grow. We continue to challenge both how we understand things now and um, how we understand things as a community and, and what each of us needs uh, going forward to try to, to live the mission, to bringing holiness into the world, righteousness, goodness, justice, to bringing that in, into the world, to face outward and take the work of the Mishkan um, out into our communities, out into um, this, this collection of human societies that so desperately, desperately needs it. And, and that's each people's job as well. I don't, I'm not saying it's just Jews. It's each people's job, right. To, to, to dig into their wisdom tradition and their inherited, you know, um, yumminess uh, in order to figure out how to bring holiness and righteousness into the world from their own people, from their own perspective. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.